A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on October 14th, 2020. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and joining us today is criminal defense attorney Allison Treasel, who is also a legal commentator for a lot of shows that you probably watch. And she's also the creator of Wild About Trial. She's also a huge friend to the show, if you will. We're so glad you're here, Allison. How are you? I am great. I love the cases that you picked to talk about today. I always love sitting down with you and your listeners and going over all of this information. And this one particularly gets me. One of the cases we're talking about particularly gets me. Okay. Well, let's, I have a feeling we know which one it is, but let's do a few of the headlines. So you know what we're looking into this week. These are our cases. Two parents were arrested In Spring Hill, Florida, on child abuse charges earlier this week, this is unbelievable. So one of their children set a mattress on fire in order to escape a room in which the parents kept him locked. It's a horrific case of abuse out of Florida. But first, we're going to talk about the case of Brittany Smith. She's an Alabama woman who just pleaded guilty to murdering a man accused of raping her. This story has gained national attention, and this case is controversial because it really makes you think, and it really makes you look more deeply into how you administer justice to a confessed killer, right? So the person has already admitted to murder, but she also says that she's a victim here. So how do you administer justice fairly when someone plays, if you will, holds both roles in a court. So this is the case of 32-year-old Brittany Smith of Alabama. She's a mother of four. How, how do you do that, Allison? How, how do you look at the individual? So this is, this is how passionate I am, not necessarily just about this woman, but her story and the law. And I disagree that she's even a confessed murderer or killer. I wouldn't even describe her that way, Anna. I would describe her as someone who was saving her own life and and that of somebody else. And she did. I would. I when I, the word murder to me connotates someone who had a depraved heart, who intentionally and without legal justification or excuse killed somebody. I don't see it that way. I, I don't see it that way at all. And um, unfortunately. Um, I am in the minority because this went all the way through the Alabama courts, including the Alabama Supreme Court. But I want to get back to the initial court's rulings, and I want to talk a little bit about this stand-your-ground law in Alabama as it applied to her. Okay, and and that is why this is so controversial, because, Allison, you may not want to use the term murder, but she did kill someone. Whether okay. she killed someone in okay. self-defense, she is okay. an admitted killer. That's, and right? Ah, I mean, I like it better than murder, but I'm not gonna go. I, I like it better than murder because I think that lur- murderer is a legal term where you have condemned someone for taking a life without legal justification. Yes, she killed somebody, 
But I have a feeling that if that most people in a similar position would do the same thing. Okay, so so let's look a little bit more deeply into this case. Now, she just pleaded guilty to killing the man that she says raped her. And rather, she didn't want to risk a jury trial because had she been convicted, found guilty, she could have spent the in, the rest of her life in prison. So instead, this is the deal. I want to I want to start with the deal and then go to the details because I think if if you if you hear it that way, it may make more sense as you're hearing the details, trying to figure out sure. what is this fair, is this not sure. fair, right? Because everyone who's listening or watching is is part of the greater community of figuring this out. You know, what is justice, I think? So as part of the deal, Brittany Smith has been sentenced to 20 years in prison. But the sentence is going to be imposed this way. 18 months in the Jackson County Jail, then 18 months under house arrest, and the rest will be probation. But she's getting credit for time served while she was waiting for her trial and the appeals before she was able to get out. So that basically means, even though she's in the jail right now, in about seven months from now, she'll be out under house arrest and then she'll begin probation. So that is her sentence. Now, some people may argue that's not enough for taking someone's life and some people may think it's too much, which is what we're going to discuss. Let's look at the case details. Wait, can I say something? please. So I've been a criminal defense attorney for 20, almost 25 years. If I'm her attorney at that point, okay, at that point when the stand your ground law, the argument has been rejected, which we will talk about, Mm -hmm. it was actually brilliant lawyering on her lawyer's uh, behalf. And I would have done the exact same thing because it's not 20 years. It is it confinement. Confinement will be about, it was like seven months in custody, followed by the 18 months of house arrest, and then a very long probation. But the problem here is that the, the um, sort of body of their argument, their, the entire argument had already been gutted. So her trial, her trial Um, was sort of a foregone conclusion in my mind. And you can't take that kind of a risk with your client when the alternative, if she loses, she spends the rest of her life in prison. So um, in terms of the actual sentence that she has received, if she was going to receive any sentence at all, this was a very good decision for her and, um, and her attorney really did a very good job in advocating for the sentence. Yes. You know, I I think when you start hearing the details of what happened to her and the things that substantiate and support what she says happened, you start to see, again, things start shifting as you hear the evidence. So let's look into the case. Brittany pleaded guilty to killing Joshua Todd Smith. This is an acquaintance, a man she had met a day or two before the killing. They have the same last name. There's no relation. And he went by his middle name, Todd. So that's how we're going to refer to him as Todd Smith. This happened on January 16th of 2018. Brittany killed Joshua or Todd, as we're going to go with, in the kitchen of her Stevenson home. She says that Todd beat her, raped her, strangled her, and then threatened to kill her and the rest of her family if she told. 
How did they meet? This this is where it starts to get very interesting. Because remember, they only knew each other for about two days. Maximum. Brittany wanted to buy a puppy. And Todd was a pit bull breeder just across the state line in Tennessee. She went over there to get a puppy. That's how they met. This, to me, is so bizarre how he then inserts himself in her life, right? Because the next day, Brittany is out with her brother running errands, right? And she gets a call from Todd. Todd says to her, I'm at a park. I'm stranded. I don't have a vehicle. Can you come get me? It's also cold out. Well, that's kind of bizarre, isn't it, Allison? Like, uh, yeah, beyond. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird. But what you need to know is that Todd has been kicked out of, out of his father's house for fighting with his dad. He got arrested as a result of that. So he really didn't have anywhere to go. And then if you realize Todd's criminal background. Which, to me, will play a huge part in what I should, what I thought should have been a very successful stand your ground law. So here is somebody, by the way, who is a bit of a con artist, right? So she is a dog lover. Here he is. He breeds these dogs. They may have had a very nice initial discussion. She's a bit vulnerable. So I think that his criminal background is really crucial to understanding the nature of this very brief relationship, Anna, because I think that if you look at his background, you can see that he's a bit of a con artist. And he is someone that she perceives as a dog lover, which means something to her. And then in this very sort of brief relationship, somehow she bonds with him. Somehow she trusts him. She They, they may have had a, a nice, friendly exchange. She may be a bit naive. Um, but And I think that's not unusual. I think that certain people, whether it's a woman or a man, kind of fall for someone initially. They don't have enough background information. And this guy's certainly not offering up the fact that he's been arrested 80 times or that he was just kicked out of his father's house. Um, so she sort of fell for that. And I do believe, based on some of the reports I've read, that when they met, they shared a little bit about their struggles with substance abuse, where Brittany had had many challenges in her life with substance abuse and had her children taken away because of it. But she was on an upswing when she met Todd because she'd gotten her life together. She said she was clean. She had just gotten a new job, which she was so excited about working in um, a, a company that sells flooring. She was so excited because she was going to be able to cover her bills and she felt like she was getting closer to maybe eventually getting her kids back. So you have to understand that when Brittany met Todd, things were looking really good for her, right? She right. was feeling really, really positive. And she may have had, you know, some compassion for someone who said that he was struggling with substance abuse. Look, anybody that anybody that really knows somebody who's gotten sober, one of the tenets of sobriety is reaching out to other people who are struggling. Yeah. So there we are. So he, Todd, calls Brittany, and she and her brother go to pick up Todd, you know, okay, so that's awfully nice. Uh, the brother drops off Todd and Brittany at Brittany's house. And this is when things get very ugly. She says that Todd headbutted her and came after her. 
and he started strangling her to the point that she passed out, she says, and when she came to, he was he was raping her. And she was very scared, and she said that she had seen him, like, completely change. Like, she saw him turn to this evil monster and then flip back again, like, in no time. So here's where it gets very interesting, Allison. So Todd has a flip again, right? Now he becomes kind of nicer Todd, and he, but he has threatened her. If you tell anybody, I will kill you, and I will kill your family. And by this point, she knows that he knows the family, right? And that's very possible. And he's so violent that you would believe him. He says he wants cigarettes. She doesn't have cigarettes, and she doesn't have a car. So she calls her mother to see if she'll come over to take them out for cigarettes. Now, here's what's interesting. The mom says to her, Brittany, I'm tired. I've been working all day. No, I'm not going to take you and what's his name out for cigarettes. But the mother later says that she felt that Brittany sounded like she'd been crying, right? So these are the things that you pick up on. This goes towards the, towards what was happening, right, Allison? Right. Okay, so the mother sends the brother over. This is the same brother who picked him up in the park who was, you know, where he had been stranded. They go to, like, a gas station or a convenience store. The two guys, right, Brittany's brother and Todd, stay in the car while she goes in to get the cigarettes. Here's what's fascinating. Okay, this to me is, like, the moment. She, go, you want to say, go ahead? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, all right. Brittany writes... Todd's name on a piece of paper, and she passes it to the cashier. And she says to the cashier, if I am found dead tomorrow, I want you to call the police, and this is the guy who killed me. And she also says very clearly to the cashier, do not call the police. Do not call the police now, right? So she's, she's scared, but she's, she's afraid of what that would risk. The other thing is that the cashier confirmed a few things. She looked disheveled. Her hair was a mess. Her fingernails had been ripped off. So she definitely looked like a woman who'd just been in a scuffle. So if you're an attorney, Allison, how does this fit in? Okay, so this is important. You're right. This is a pivotal moment, okay? And it would come up later at at the Stand Your Ground hearing. So in the law, there's something... There's a there's an exception to the hearsay rule and or it's called a present sense recorded. Okay, and what it is, is you can retell a story that would otherwise be inadmissible if it happened simultaneous to the event without undue influence. Okay, that it is deemed credible because it's happening in the moment where where. If you don't have time to reflect, you don't have time to make it up. It's so important in something like this. What would be her motivation, Anna, in that moment to lie, to tell? I mean, she's planning on murdering somebody. And so she's already concocted a story that she's going to tell and be very convincing, by the way. I mean, the, the clerk would say this was a woman that was in distress. I mean, this is some something bad was going on. So she tells them, if I die, it's this person. Okay. Um, it, it would take someone, I mean, you'd have to be a serious 
mastermind to come up with a scheme where you go in, you, you look frazzled, you look afraid, and you pass this note. No, no, this is a sign that this truly happened to her and that she is afraid that this man is going to kill her. That is as credible of evidence as you can ever get without having video of it. Of course, the prosecution would say on the flip side, this was premeditated. She was setting him up. I'm just I'm just presenting you. the other side. I'm not suggesting I believe that. I'm just saying. I hear you, but I have a really hard time um, with something as spontaneous and as, uh, I mean, that that is a real life scenario where you can mm -hmm. see somebody coming in and writing it out and sending it to him and saying, don't call the police. Don't call the police because she has been threatened that he will do something to them. And it's important that the cashier knew Brittany. So she knew her demeanor, you know, as a regular customer and how she usually looked. Correct. So when you pick up that something's not right, you're usually correct, right? You're, you're going to know. You've got that point of reference. So the next thing that happens, you know, she gets back in and they go back to her house. And by the time she gets home, so now Brittany's home in her home with her brother and with Todd. What's interesting is Brittany manages to send a text message to her mother. And in that she says, mom, this is I'm quoting, mom, Todd has tried to kill me literally. But she says also in the text message, mom, don't do anything. Don't call the police or he'll kill me. Now, I don't know what you would, you know, as a mom, I would call the police. I mean, I don't think I would stand down because of my daughter, right? Of course I would. No question. No question. But that did not happen. Correct. Okay. So now the three of them are in the house and Brittany's account and her brother's account is that the two men start fighting. It's, I, I, I'm a little fuzzy here. Did she manage to explain to her brother that she'd been raped? So all the reports that I read are that she did disclose to her brother that she had been raped. And as a result, the brother confronted Todd about it and they get into this fight. Right. The brother says to Todd, you got to get out of here. Todd then grabs the brother and puts him in this neck lock and he's having trouble breathing. Brittany says she's screaming at him to stop and he won't let go of her brother. So... She grabs her brother's gun and she shoots Todd three times. Correct. Correct. Now, I have to say that there, I am not, that is not as convincing to me as the incident in the uh, convenience store because we really don't have, we don't, Todd is not here to speak. There's no video of it. And so did it go down exactly that way? We will never know. We will never know. And Later, as I'm sure you're about to get into, the first explanation is that her brother killed Todd. Right, which is very confusing because the brother says he believed that no one would ever believe his sister's version of events. So that's why he would take the blame. What's also interesting here is the brother was also charged with murder, but that charge was later dropped um, to basically tampering with evidence because it was his gun and he wiped the gun clean 
of right. any DNA, of any fingerprints. So clearly, they must have been worried about something. Well, Correct. sure, there's a dead man in the kitchen. Correct. Okay. Right. So yes. she calls police. Uh-huh. And she tells police, you know, that something's happened. A man's been shot. And what I find very interesting here is that while she is, because you can hear her, while she's talking to 911, she says to the 911 operator, I don't want him to die. So the 911 operator says to her, do CPR. So apparently she did mouth to mouth while her brother Chris did compression to try and keep him alive. But by the time the cops got there, it's like 1.30 in the morning, Todd's dead. Correct. Okay. So ultimately, Brittany is indicted on murder charges, right? Yep. She's indicted on murder charges, which is pretty standard, right? You have a dead body. You have someone holding a gun. You have someone who says, yes, I shot them. But that is not where this inquiry ends or where it should have ended. And um, she says, I only shot him in self-defense to protect myself, to protect my brother. And in Alabama, they have a stand your ground law which, by the way, um, for the most part, only applies to men and not women, okay, because... What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is... The the law doesn't say that. Nope, but in reality, or the practical effect, is that only three women in the state of Alabama have been successful with this defense. Mm. I have a problem with that, Anna. Oh, so do I, Allison. So do I. Which brings us back to the original question. Yeah. How do you administer justice and do it fairly, right? So already you're feeling like there's a sense, there's a predisposition toward not having any form of um, balance, if you will, right, in how justice will be served. You know what's interesting in Alabama, too? They don't have a state public defender's office. So judges appoint private attorneys to represent people. I'm always suspicious of any government that doesn't provide legal defense to those who are the most vulnerable. Gideon versus Wainwright. People are entitled to counsel. Conflict-free counsel. If a judge appoints someone who is making less money than they would ordinarily make in a privately retained case, are they going to give that person as much attention? And by the way, I am I am not passing judgment on any of these Alabama attorneys that handle. No, absolutely not. No, they probably do a wonderful job. But the fact that there isn't an office set up and funded by the government to represent those who cannot afford representation um, is bothersome. It's bothersome. It is. It is. And I'm sure there are a lot of great attorneys who are very happy to be helping and to truly give back. But there may be an attorney who gets assigned who's resentful, who's like, I don't need this. Well, that's exactly my point. And, and look, it is not to I'm believe me, um, I have worked hand in hand with the L.A. County Public Defender's Office. And some of those lawyers are the best in the business. They are outstanding. Um, but it is. Uh, it is bedrock law that under Gideon, people deserve to be appointed counsel who have 
no conflict, and it is their sole job to represent them. So that said, I want to talk because I've been I've been dying to actually talk about this stand your ground hearing. Okay, <laughs> go for it. That go for it. Could have not been a sham, and in my opinion, Anna, it was a sham because here's the testimony. Here is the testimony, and I've taken notes, and I want to talk about it. Okay. Okay. Take so over, Allison. Is this all right? She wakes up after being rendered unconscious with no clothes on and a puddle of urine. Okay. The nurse who interviews her and who does the examination testifies, testifies um, for two hours, more than two hours. Um, and she includes dozens of photographs of Brittany's injuries. Okay. I think there are 30 or yes. so mm -hmm. bruises to Brittany's neck, breasts, arms, legs, and head. There are discolored patches all over her that indicate use of extreme pressure. This indicates, as testified by an expert, that she was probably hit multiple times and held down. Okay, this is an independent witness who says, look, she came into the hospital. This is what I observed. Here are the pictures, okay? So the judge, by the way, when making their ruling that Stand Your Ground didn't apply, there is hints that she didn't believe that Brittany was raped. Okay. She didn't, and she said so much in yes. court. She said that her version of events did not line up with the evidence at the scene and how things were played out. Um, so here's who else, what else we learned. Okay, here's what else we learned. Could we go back to the nurse for a minute? Sure. Because this is one of the things that I found challenging. The nurse said that there was no trauma around the genitalia semen his semen was found on her body correct the nurse also said that that's actually not that unusual okay that the trauma is not uh dispositive that the lack of trauma is not dispositive his semen was found on her body okay mm -hmm. so i hear you but only I because the judge made a big big deal of that that's i i'm I'm not passing judgment. No, no, I agree. But his semen was found on her body, which means a lot to me. Okay. And you couple that with the bruising and the injuries, something happened here. Something that was the, the, the amount of force that was used bothers me a lot. Absolutely. And then you, and then you couple it with this. So when you, when someone testifies, when a defendant testifies, okay, they run the risk not only of a cross-examination, but they also run the risk of the jury hearing about prior bad acts or prior convictions, because those come in to challenge the credibility of that person, okay? Those are a pattern of behavior that matters 
to whether this person is truthful or not and the type of person that they are, okay? So at this stand your ground hearing, um, there were witnesses um, to talk about Todd's violent history. He had been arrested 80 times, 80 times. Unbelievable. At least half a dozen of which were for domestic violence against multiple women, okay? So is this his MO? I mean, half a dozen for um, his ex-wife, Paige Parker, said that he had beaten and raped and sodomized her for years. Um, and Allison, let's not forget that the toxicology report on Todd Smith, he had high as a kite. Unbelievably high levels of methamphetamine. Very high levels. So clearly he was out of his mind. Out of his mind. Right. And what I found interesting, by the way, is that after the hearing, one of Todd's cousins had been there and sat through the hearing, and his initial response was, I wanted to kill Brittany Smith for taking the life of my cousin. I sat through this hearing and I cried and I cried and I apologized to her for what my cousin put her through. That's interesting. I mean, that's powerful. That's oh, very, so. very powerful. It is. So, so the reason that I'm so passionate about this, Anna, is because um, I don't know what else, what more. If someone comes into your house to burglarize your house, you can kill them in Alabama. You can stand your ground. You don't have to retreat and you can kill them. Okay. Here we have someone who all indications were that she was raped, that she was beaten and that this man intended to do harm to her and her brother and her defense was summarily dismissed over and over. And um, that's, that's, that bothers me. It bothers me. And then when you put it in context that so few women in Alabama, I, I, I mean, I highly doubt that Alabama is the exception where women aren't raped and beaten and, and uh, aren't the victims of domestic violence. I, I mean, I don't think that the numbers are any different in Alabama than they are in the rest of the country. Why is it that this defense has so seldomly um, shielded these women from prosecution. I, 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 have a, I just don't understand that. Allison, a legal question. If the court had found that she could use the defense of stand your ground, does that mean that her trial would be based from, from that starting point or that there never would be a trial and she would never be charged? She would have been shielded from prosecution. So it is a complete defense, but it doesn't even get there. This is that they could not prosecute her. If they were to find, if this judge was to find that, in fact, she had a valid stand your ground argument, there would have been no prosecution. Do you also find it interesting? Because, again, this all goes towards fairness and everyone having access she had, her family didn't have the money 
to get her bailed out, right? It took a while, and finally her mother was able to finally get her out because while the appeals were going on, in the middle of all this, Brittany then gets charged with yet another crime, a serious crime. She gets charged with arson, setting two fires in a mobile home, and that ends up being that charge then revokes the bail, and she goes back to jail. Right. Um, I don't know enough about the arson charge to fully discuss and explain yes. how that happened, why that happened. I just, I just don't know. Um, but I, as to the question of whether there was an inherent unfairness um, regarding her ability to bail out and to retain private counsel, again, I told you that I thought that her appointed counsel um, did a very good job for her. And that ultimately, even though that stand your ground um, defense was unsuccessful, the decision that her lawyer made to have her accept a deal was really the best one, was really the one in her interest because to take this case to trial without the self-defense argument um, or leaving it that that to, to, in the hands of a jury um, was too risky. It just yes. was too risky. So a little bit more um, on the, we don't know a lot of the details of the arson charge, but if she ends up being convicted, they have, the prosecutors have already agreed that if there is a conviction, that sentence will run concurrently with her current sentence. Correct. So we don't believe that she will do any additional prison time because of it. It right. will just be tacked on to what she has now. And just, you know, maybe a little bit more on Brittany. You know, we, we said that she struggled with addiction, and she had had three of her four children had been removed from, from her because she wasn't able to care for them, and they were raised by an uncle. Um, she was moving towards more independent visitations, and she really wanted to get custody. I think it's important to, to look at everything she's been through, and how far she had come in trying to pull her life together. Because I think that says a lot about a person. Right? Agree. Absolutely agree. Yeah. And look, their past struggles and they're, they're sort of in a forward motion to make things better. Yeah. Um, I yeah, do. I do. And Brittany's mother said that her daughter didn't have a choice but to take this deal. Absolutely no choice. The mother said Brittany's she. Mother is right, Anna. Is right. There is she no. Was a, other. I mean, yeah. It it, it comes. You know, it comes down to. Um, do you ever want to get out of prison? I mean, I wouldn't take that risk. I wouldn't advise anyone to take a risk like that. It's too great. It's too great. I think it's possible, given how much attention this case has gotten, and the fact that. Her attorneys have fought so hard and got it to the Alabama State Supreme Court. Let's hope that Brittany's case will have an effect on other cases like this next well, time. We're, talk we're talking about it, right? right. We're talking yeah. about it. We're, we're sort of um, uh, really dissecting um, not just her case, but the idea of does stand your ground law in Alabama apply to everybody equally, regardless of your sex, regardless of how much money you have, 
doesn't apply equally. And I think that it is something to note that there is less than a handful of women who have been successful with this defense in the state of Alabama. And I cannot imagine, I just cannot imagine that you're going to tell me that there's just simply less domestic violence or there's just simply less. Self-defense has been a maxim of the law um, for 200 years. It, 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 and if you attack me, I should be able to defend myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, why have this law in Alabama if people like Brittany or in similar situations cannot avail themselves of it? Because it's, it's like not having it. And it's further victimizing the victim, <clears throat> excuse me, which we see all the time. And that is the part that drives me crazy. So really fascinating conversation and whether things will change now in Alabama because of Brittany Smith. Correct. On to our second case. This is out of Spring Hill, Florida. This is where two parents have been arrested after one of their children set fire to a mattress in order to escape the most deplorable of conditions in this bedroom that this little boy was locked in. Investigators say that they thought that they were just looking into an arson case, right? They got in there. It's like, okay, what's going on? And when they looked at the condition of the room and the child, you know, they found feces and urine on the floor and on the walls. And that's when arson investigators are like, hold on a second, what's going on here? So the deputies determined that the child, who's an eight-year-old boy, and this is all according to court records, was often locked in this bedroom without electricity or natural light or heat or air and was treated differently from the other children. The other children were girls. But apparently this boy, for whatever reason, the parents said that he had behavioral issues and there may have been some issues with, I don't know if there was mental illness, I don't know, but this is an eight-year-old child. So the way they handled this child was to lock him. I mean, and there was no way that he could get out, and he'd be locked in there for 11 to 12 hours. And they had the windows sealed so he couldn't get out that way. I mean, it, it was it's a freaking dungeon. It is incomprehensible. It is abhorrent. I mean, you talk about having depraved hearts. You talk about cruelty. They, the parents admitted, Anna, that they treated their dogs better than they treated this child. Anna, he is eight years old. Yes. First of all, I'm so amazed that he and his sibling, because one of the children, all of which are under 10, by the way, yep. gave him some matches under his door. So right. I'm so amazed that these children came up with this as a way to escape. That's the kind of hell that he must have been going through, that he took such desperate measures um, as to light his own mattress on fire. Um, but that's what he did. And um, these parents who, by the way, have since had their, their charged, of course, and they're looking at a maximum of 30 years in prison, each of them, for this aggravated child abuse. Um, all their children were removed from the home, thankfully. The scarring, the damage, the cruelty, what they have done to not just him, but all of these children um, is, 
incomprehensible. Because you have to imagine that the girls, right, who are being treated differently, that there's a part of them that feels guilty and shameful, right, that they have something a little bit better than their than their little brother or their big brother, right? They're, because that's just how children are. So the trauma and the fear in which they lived with, come on, you know those kids knew it was wrong to lock a child because there was like this big piece of wood that they would have. It was not only locked, but like this big piece of wood, like, you know, when you're Katie bar the door kind of thing. Um, so the child couldn't get out. The other children saw that. This was no great mystery. There was nothing in that room except a dirty, soiled mattress. Yeah, no and boy, a blanket. Nothing, nothing. Can the you parent, and the parents said, um, in, in the, this is in uh, the police record, they said, well, if he needed to use the bathroom, we told him to yell, right? And then we'd and, let him out. And by the way, sometimes they couldn't hear him. Well, sometimes of course not. So what is um, going to be an interesting, what's going to be interesting is this case makes its way to court, right, is will one parent turn on the other parent? Will one parent say, um, I knew that this was wrong, but husband or wife had such control of me that they made me do this? Um, because what kind of defense can these, can these two argue? Um, mental illness? Um, under, I mean, there's no theory here that corporal punishment because this child had behavioral issues would ever under any circumstances um, extend to this behavior ever. No, no, absolutely not. So um, the people charged Kelly Davis, who's 36 and Daniel Davis, 37, they have a total of the six children from infant to 10 and, and then the boy and then all girls. Here's what I find very interesting. And we see this all the time in child abuse cases where the system fails to intervene when there is an opportunity to intervene. So apparently the children were all homeschooled and rarely left the residence. So that could explain. And of course, in the middle of a pandemic, you may not find it strange that you don't see the children. Okay. Granted, not the biggest of red flags there given the circumstances, but in February and July calls were made from nine one two nine one one from that house. And the calls, there'd be a call and a hang-up, a call and a hang-up. Correct. I can't tell you how many cases I have investigated of child abuse where the children would pick up the phone, but they knew that if they went through with it, they'd get into trouble, so they'd hang up. And sometimes, I one of my cases, Allison, the little children... They were arguing amongst themselves. One would go to call 911. There was two dead bodies in the house. One would be calling 911, and then the other one would say, no, remember, mommy and daddy said we can't call the police, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if the children amongst themselves are, are arguing over whether even calling 911. Okay, so that, that's one thing. But the next one that is really interesting is that in August, a neighbor contacted the sheriff's department because she said she saw the boy in, I guess, her garage or a neighbor's garage going through a refrigerator. A lot of people keep refrigerators in the garage, but it wasn't in his home. So here he is digging through someone else's fridge for food in someone else's garage. And so the neighbor thought, this is not right. I'm calling the cops. 
and the same deputies who arrested, well, the same department who arrested the parents show up. And so they didn't go in the house. They didn't go in the house, but the parents gave them a story, said, you know, our son has behavioral issues. Three missed opportunities. Three missed opportunities. Look, being a social worker is hard work, okay? And um, hindsight is uh, 2020, right? I mean, what could have, should have, would have happened. But anyone trained, it, when there's a 911 call and, and, it's, and, it, and the person hangs up, you got to investigate that. You do. You, mm-hmm. You've got to investigate it. Why? Why? Why was that number called? Is that person under duress? Are they trying to get a signal out? I mean, look, the burning of his own mattress is really an extension of the 911 calls, right? I mean, he's saying, I mean, could you send out a a bigger smoke signal than lighting your own mattress on fire? Um, when, When kids are involved, you have got to do better. You've got to take every precaution And you can't just take parents at their word because if you're abusing your child and locking them in their room, do you think you're going to say, oh, I'm sorry, we've done a horrible thing? You're going to lie. You're going to lie to the police. And the police did not go into the home. So they wouldn't, had they gone into the home, they would have seen the room. That's correct. And that would have explained everything, and hopefully the child would have been taken and, and be put in a safe place and something happened to those parents. I, I don't know what to tell you about this case. I, I am, I, as sad as I am, there is this little glimmer of hope that fills my heart. And the fact that one of his sisters tried to save him by yeah. putting the matches under the door gives me hope for these children. I'll tell you another thing, Anna, that, that um, I'm just happy that that phone call didn't come after the boy had died. Yeah. I'm happy that that final call and that final police intervention, although delayed, um, the ch- all the children are alive. Mm-hmm. The, they have been removed from their parents' custody. Their parents are in, in jail. And each of them are facing a maximum of 30 years in prison. And I will not be surprised if they don't spend a good part of that in prison. And you know what, Allison? They're going to be treated better in prison than they treated their own son. That's, that's They're going to be given a toilet. They're going to be given food. And they're going to be allowed to exercise. Right? And I'm telling you. We have to see what we have to follow this up because I'm so curious what the defense will be. And I foresee them turning on each other. Okay. And you know. Yeah, I do. All right. Let's move on to comments. An 11 year old steals a school bus. This sounds like every child's dream, right? (laughs) To take the bus and drive it and leads police officers in Baton Rouge on a huge pursuit. The 11-year-old boy was ultimately arrested, and he was charged with stealing a school bus for going on a joyride. I don't know if I would have charged the 11-year-old, for God's sakes. I mean, it's a stupid thing, but what child has not dreamed about 
doing it and then accomplishing it, right? It's like, oh my God, I'm doing it. I got it. I got the police chasing me. <laughs> um, the funny thing is, as a defense attorney, I feel like you probably have to charge him. Yeah. You have to charge him because you have to do something to intervene before um, before it gets really bad. I don't know. I, I It's a school bus. It probably was a dream of his. Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd be a little, as, as, as a mom who has children about that age, probably the punishment that I would extract in my own house would be far worse than any. Yeah. 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 I, I, I get it. I get it. But hopefully they'll, you know, something reasonable will happen and get driver's ed lessons. I don't know. Oh my God. I mean, to be that successful at 11, a yeah. woman who recorded the police chase with her cell phone said that as the bus got closer and closer, she all of a sudden realized, oh my Lord, it's a little boy. And that he was laughing. <laughs> I don't doubt that he was having a great time. She says, quote, he was giggling right as he went right by me. I don't, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Okay. So he's been charged with theft of a motor vehicle, aggravated property damage and aggravated assault. Come on, people. That, that's a little much. That's it's a little, a little much. much. Hal B. writes, that little kid is playing too much Grand Theft Auto. Clearly, it's working, right? I love those stories about kids who practice, like, flying, and then they land planes. I'm yeah. always amazed at these things, right? Amazing. <laughs> and then Megan E. writes, charges were way too serious. He's 11. Totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, this next one. Oh, boy, this one is so bizarre. I don't know what to make of this one. All right. <laughs> Allison, Oklahoma City detention officers have been charged in forcing inmates to listen to baby shark. <laughs> by the way, this is cruel and unusual punishment, by the way. It really, really is. I've I've heard that song um, five times. And after the fifth one, I did want to break my boom box. So, yes. <laughs> oh, OK. So my son's 21. So we're not listening to this. So I literally last night. You know, I Googled it and I played it for a few minutes and I was like, oh, dear Lord, this is torture. You know, it reminds me of all the songs my son, my son would listen to. stuck in your head? Do, 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 do. like the modern day Barney, you know? Right. Okay. So two Oklahoma City detention officers and their supervisor are charged with cruelty to prisoners, corporal punishment and conspiracy. They allegedly pulled the inmates out of their cells late at night. They handcuffed their arms behind their backs in a standing position, and they were chained to the wall. I guess these were the interview rooms that they use for uh, attorneys. Attorney, attorney interview rooms. Okay. And made them listen to Baby Shark for hours. <laughs> oh, my God. And the song is already repetitive to begin with, right? Yeah, and, and parents hate this song. And I'm, I know, yeah, it's, I'm only laughing at, it's such an interesting, like, what was the genesis of this? Did one of them, was he angry? I'm wondering a couple things, okay? There are video cameras in prison facilities uh, covering every single angle. Right. So what made these officers think, A, this was a good idea, and B, they weren't going to get caught? I mean, I, I don't understand that. I mean, the, the just the hand, you know, the handcuffing them behind their backs and chaining them to the wall. And then the baby shark, I, I um, you know, not, this it's one. a little Guantanamo Bay in there. <laughs> I, I'm, with you. I'm with you. Yep. I with you. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and why baby shark? Like someone must have said, that's it. it I've listened so to baby shark for the last time in the world. That's why. Of course. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. And apparently this happened like at least five times. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Sammy C writes from personal experience with my twins, this is torture. And I find this very funny. <laughs> Rachel R writes, Ugh, having a four excuse me, having a five month old, I can confirm that baby shark is cruel and unusual punishment. That's what I said. I agree. Yep. And Alexander W writes, don't do the crime. If you can't do, 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 do the time. That's funny. That's really funny. Yeah. I now get that reference having seen the video. And listening to it over and over. Yeah. No, I, I press stop <laughs> in the freedom of my own home. Very stop. Very right. Allison, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for your insight. I mean, I always like ending on a happier note if possible, right? Because everything was so dark today. So it dark. Was, but you know, I mean, it, look, I, I love the idea that we could talk about these issues have a real discussion about it that hopefully leads to our viewers um, discussing it as well and thinking about these issues and what they mean to them and what their state does. Um, and maybe it, it results in some real change. So gosh, I, I love that. And I love talking to you always. Mm. Oh, it's so much fun. And I do I do read all our comments um, because our listeners or viewers, depending on how you consume this, really share their opinions. And I really want to hear what you think. You know, did Brittany get justice or not? It'll be very interesting to see how that comes out. If people want more information about you or they need a criminal defense attorney with a sense of humor, where can people find you? <laughs> okay, so I have a law practice in Los Angeles, a criminal defense practice. Um, I'm the legal expert at KTLA. I'm the legal expert at Access Hollywood. And I have a site called Wild About Trial. Terrific. And you can always find me on all social media platforms at Anna G News. That's Anna with one N. And our content is available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube. And of course, you can always get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.